Um, so this morning we're going to read about an extraordinary exchange between Jesus and a Samaritan woman who isn't named here in the scripture. The first thing that is extraordinary about this passage is that Jesus makes a number of statements about who he is and what God is going to do through, through him. Now these things that Jesus talks about are quite radical because God is about to usher in the new covenant through Jesus. What else is extraordinary about this encounter is that Jesus was at a place that you wouldn't have expected to see him and he was just talking to one person about these things. And on top of that, he was talking to a Samaritan woman. Now, as we get into this, we will find that his actions were contrary to the social norms and the culture of the day. He shouldn't have been where he was or talking to who he was. Now, the outcome of this encounter was that the woman became a believer. She went on to share about Christ with others, and many people from her town became believers. The disciples recognised the importance of these events, and so much so that one of them recorded it in his account of Jesus. So let's pray, and then we'll come to the word. Lord, we just thank you that, that we can come here this morning and, and open your word. And Lord, we just pray as, as we look into your word, as we read through what um, happened there on that day, Lord, we just pray that your spirit will speak to us. Similarly, Lord, we pray for those around the city who are also um, just opening your word this morning as well. And we pray that you're with them as well. Amen. Okay, so we're going to read um, John chapter 4 and we're reading uh, verse 1 through to 30. Jesus knew the Pharisees had heard that he was baptising and making more disciples than John. Though Jesus himself didn't baptise them, his disciples did. So he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He had to go through Samaria on the way. Eventually he came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near the field that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. The woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. She said to Jesus, You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus replied, If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me, and I would give you living water. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, she said, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you're greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? Jesus replied, 
Anyone who drinks this water will soon become thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. Go and get your husband, Jesus told her. I don't have a husband, the woman replied. Jesus said, you're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands, and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. Sir, the woman said, you must be a prophet. So tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship, while we Samaritans claim it is here, at Mount Gerizim? where our ancestors worshipped. Jesus replied, Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming. Indeed, it's here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit, and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way. For God is spirit, so those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus told her, I am the Messiah. Just then his disciples came back. They were shocked to find him talking to a woman, but none of them had the nerve to ask, What do you want with her? or Why are you talking to her? The woman left her water jar beside the well and ran back to the village, telling everyone, Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could he possibly be the Messiah? So the people came streaming from the village to see him. Now, there's a little bit of uh, background that we need to explore so that we can get some understanding of the significance of what took place at Jacob's well. Some of this background is quite apparent within the text that we just read, but there's a few things that we should explore a little bit, little bit more. Now, firstly, the, uh, the location is of significance. Jesus was at Jacob's well, which was located at Jacob's field. And this piece of land is actually the first piece of land that Jacob himself owned within the promised land. Uh, Jacob had bought the field for about 100 pieces of silver and he also built an altar there and the altar was named the God of Israel. Now in Egypt the, the ownership was later passed on to, to Joseph and it was here in this field that Joseph's remains were laid to rest. The children of Israel had brought uh, his bones with them when they left Egypt in the Exodus. And this happened after the Israelites had re-entered the Promised Land under the leadership of Joshua. Now that was a significant event in the history of Israel as it was another reminder of God's faithfulness. He had brought them out of captivity in Egypt, through the wilderness and into the Promised Land. 
So we see that this piece of land held some historical and cultural significance to the Jewish people. Now, it's in John 4 that Jacob's well is first mentioned in the Bible, uh, which means there's no reference to it in the New Testament, in the Old Testament, sorry. However, the woman mentioned how the water from the well was enjoyed by Jacob and his sons and his animals. The well itself was spring-fed, and so therefore it brought forth fresh, pure water. And the well is still there today. It can be found in the city of Nablus, and Nablus is located in the West Bank. So, similar to the time of Jesus, this location is not within Israel's territory. Today the well can be found in, the in a building within a monastery. Um, so there's a picture of the well today, and that's po possibly what it looked like in the time of Jesus. Um, now also Joseph's tomb is located nearby in, in another building, so it's not too far away. So those places are still there today. The other piece of background that highlights the significance of this account is the fact that this encounter involves Jesus and a Samaritan woman. Jacob's field and Jacob's well were located within Samaritan territory. At that time, tension existed between the Samaritans and the Jews. And we saw evidence of that in the text that we just read this morning. The Samaritans' heritage was a bit of a mixture of Jewish and Gentile. That is both physically as well as culturally. Their race is a result of intermarriage between Israelites and the pagan people who lived around them. And their ancestors were the Israelites who remained in the land after the Assyrians had conquered the northern kingdom. So the Samaritans were descendants of those people. So they did not have a pure Israelite bloodline. Hence the Jewish people of Jesus' time viewed the Samaritans as being impure and unclean. And it wasn't just their lineage that was a mixture of Jew and Gentile. Their culture and their religion were also a mixture of Judaism and paganism. You see, the Samaritans treated the first five books of our Bible as scripture. They, they treated that as truth. But they rejected the Psalms and the prophets. The result at the time of Jesus was a mishmash of Judaism and pagan rituals. And this was a very distinct culture from the Jewish culture of the time. One of the distinctions highlighted in the passage today was the difference of opinion as to where the temple should be located. The Jewish place of worship was in Jerusalem and Samaritans was on Mount Gerizim. The dislike between the Jews and the Samaritans was so great that even though this location held some great significance to the Jews, no self-respecting Jew or Jewish leader would go out of their way to visit this place. You see, Jesus was travelling from Jerusalem to Galilee, and if you looked at a direct line on a map, it would take you straight through Samaria. However, 
Jews of that time would usually take a route that was much longer and they would circumvent Samaria completely. And they would do that just so that they could avoid entering the Samaritan territory. They wanted nothing to do with those people. But Jesus had broken with current convention and we see that happening a lot in Jesus' ministry throughout the Gospels. Now in the light of this background there are a couple of things to note that makes this an unusual encounter. First of all, as I've just mentioned, Jesus was in Samaria in the first place. The other thing that we note was that he was on his own. The disciples were not with him. And I would have thought that was going to be quite unusual in that situation, just to leave him alone where he was. He was also tired and thirsty, and that sort of reminds us that Jesus is God incarnate. He's fully human and he's fully man, uh, fully God. So that fully human side was sort of shown. I know sometimes we think that Jesus should have been a bit more like Superman in those things. Also, the other thing we noticed was that Jesus just doesn't ignore the woman, but he seeks out and he initiates a conversation with her. And there's sort of two things going on there within the culture of the day. First of all, she, of course, she was a Samaritan, and secondly, she was a woman. So it was quite unusual for a person in, in Jesus' position to be talking to, to her. And this is really highlighted when the disciples did return because they were shocked to find him speaking with the Samaritan woman. The other thing that's, that's not quite evident in there is that as a rabbi, Jesus was drinking from an unclean vessel that belonged to an unclean woman. And so it's against this entire backdrop that Jesus made some pretty important statements about himself. And those statements that he made were so important that they are recorded in our Bibles for us to read today. So we can read them, we can study them, and we can incorporate the principles of them into our own Christian walk. This is the time, and this is the place, and this is the person whom he chose to talk about these things. He shared with the Samaritan woman who he was, what he had to offer, and how she could receive it. Throughout the conversation they had, the Samaritan woman brings forward three statements or questions. Now, two of these are directed at the cultural and religious differences that should have existed between them. And the third statement brings up the promise and the hope of the expected Messiah. Jesus then brings forward three replies, and he generally directs the conversation away from her questions and towards a higher truth about who he is and what he could offer her. And these truths are about to bring a transformation in her life, and as we read on later on, a transformation in the lives of the people around her. The first thing that Jesus talks about is the living water. They are at a well, Jesus is tired and thirsty, and the first part of the conversation centres on water. Jesus said, please give me a drink. 
You are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Jesus bypasses her question and he makes this statement. If you only knew the gift God has for you and who you are speaking to, you would ask me and I would give you living water. So the Samaritan woman was surprised that Jesus was even speaking to her. And because of this, she brought up the cultural tension that should have existed between them. And Jesus' subsequent reply directs her to matters of greater importance. Things like, who is he? Who is Jesus? There is the mention of the gift of God, which is the living water, and the fact that this gift was available to her. The conversation continued. But sir, you don't have a rope or a bucket, and this well is very deep. Where would you get this living water? And besides, do you think you are greater than our ancestor Jacob, who gave us this well? How can you offer better water than what he and his sons and his animals enjoyed? So what is this living water that they're talking about? Well, Jesus explains it further. Anyone who drinks this water, this water from Jacob's well, will become thirsty again. So even though the natural water of Jacob's well is of the highest quality, it is fresh, it is nourishing, and even though it had been providing people and animals sustenance for centuries, it can only sustain for a short period of time. You have to keep returning to it for a refill. But those who drink the water I give will never be thirsty again. It becomes a fresh, bubbling spring within them, giving them eternal life. So we see that this living water comes from Jesus, and it remains as a fresh, bubbling spring within a person, continually sustaining them and giving them eternal life. So what are we talking about here? Jesus is using the term living water as a metaphor for the Holy Spirit. And more specifically, it is a metaphor for the gift of the Holy Spirit in dwelling within the believer. How do we know this? Well, this isn't the only time that Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit as the living water. Later on in John 7, Jesus again promises the living water. But this time it is to a different audience in a much different location. He speaks to the crowds at the Festival of Shelters in Jerusalem. And on this, that occasion, John gives commentary on what Jesus was actually talking about when he spoke about living water. So this is from John chapter 7, verses 37 to 39. On the last day, the climax of the festival, Jesus stood and shouted to the crowds, Anyone who is thirsty may come to me. Anyone who believes in me may come and drink. For the scriptures declare, rivers of living water will flow from his heart. When he said living water, he was speaking of the Spirit, who would be given to everyone believing in him. But the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus had not yet entered into his glory. So Jesus was talking about an aspect of the new covenant that was about to be ushered in. 
In the past, the Holy Spirit had been bestowed externally upon Old Testament saints and prophets. But soon the Holy Spirit would dwell within believers. And this would only be possible through Jesus. He was the one bringing the gift. The Holy Spirit would be the seal of salvation and the ongoing agent of sanctification within the believer. And of course we know that sanctification is the process of the believer becoming more Christ-like as they spiritually mature throughout their natural lifespan. So you can understand that it's incredible that one of the earliest recorded instances of Jesus declaring this is to a lone woman in Samaria. Now my, my thoughts on this is that it is indicative of who this gift would be available to. It wasn't just for God's chosen people, the Jews, but it would be available to the Samaritans and also in time to the Gentiles. And this is further evidence later in the conversation when Jesus talks about true worshippers who would no longer worship the Father at a specific location, but they would worship him in spirit and truth. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 13 to 14. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you. And when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. And what we find next is that the focus of conversation switches from Jesus and the gift of the living water and back to the woman herself and her personal situation. And I believe that the reason Jesus stares it this way is that he is pointing out that there is something standing in the way of her from receiving this gift of the Holy Spirit. And that blockade is sin. Here's how it went. Please, sir, the woman said, give me this water, then I'll never be thirsty again, and I won't have to come here to get water. You see, the woman is starting to realise who Jesus is and what exactly it is that he is offering her. She wants in. But Jesus sort of says, hang on a second, I need to bring to your attention something that needs to be dealt with first. And that issue was her inherent sinful nature. Go and get your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right, you don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands and you aren't even married to the man you're living with now. You certainly spoke the truth. So there's a few things that the Samaritan woman could take away from that statement that Jesus just made. First of all, who is this guy? He knew this woman's history, even though he shouldn't have known her from a bar of soap. As was already dawning on her, this was no ordinary person that she was talking to. He was a prophet or something like that. And of course, as, as we know, in fact, he is the Son of God himself. And he is the Messiah. The other point is that sin stands in the way of mankind and God. As we know from scripture, sinfulness 
is inherent in all of us. In this woman's case, her sinful nature was highlighted by the fact that she had had multiple partners throughout her lifetime. Now maybe today that might not see, be, seem to be such a, a big deal, but certainly it was a big deal back then. In others, sinfulness may be highlighted by other things, and it may simply be highlighted by the knowledge that we put ourselves before God. Scripture tells us that not only do we need to recognise this, but we also need to repent of our sinful nature. These are the words of Peter on the day of Pentecost from Acts chapter 2, verses 38 to 39. Each of you must repent of your sins and turn to God and be baptised in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is to you and to your children and even to the Gentiles, all who have been called by the Lord our God. Our sinfulness stands between us and the promises of God. When it comes to salvation, the subject of our sin is part of the gospel message. It's part of the good news. We recognise that we are sinful in nature and that we have fallen short of God's standard. We repent of our sin. Jesus pays the price of our sin through God the, before God the Father through his death on the cross. And Jesus is the only way to that salvation. When a non-believer repents of their sinful nature, they receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, that is the living water, and the Holy Spirit is the seal of their salvation. And then going forward, the Holy Spirit guides them in the working out of their salvation. The living water gives us eternal life and sustains us spiritually. We then see that the conversation moves on to the topic of worship. Up to this time, God's children or God's people were God's chosen people, and that was generally the Israelites. In the text today, we see that there was a conflict of, of opinion about God and where he was to be worshipped uh, between the descendants of Israel, a conflicting opinion between the Jew and the Samaritan. And of course we see in the text that the woman brought forward this conflict to Jesus. Sir, you must be a prophet, so tell me, why is it that you Jews insist that Jerusalem is the only place of worship while we Samaritans claim it is here at Mount Gerizim where our ancestors worshipped? Jesus replied by talking about another radical change that was about to take place. His reply nullifies the issue of where God should be worshipped. There was about to be a change in the way that God was to be worshipped. It would no longer be a question of where, but rather it would be about how God would be worshipped. Believe me, dear woman, the time is coming when it will no longer matter whether you worship the Father on this mountain or in Jerusalem. You Samaritans know very little about the one you worship, while we Jews know all about him, for salvation comes through the Jews. But the time is coming, indeed it is here now, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is looking for those who will worship him that way, for God is spirit, 
So those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. This idea of worshipping God in spirit and truth goes hand in hand with the concept of the living water, that the Holy Spirit dwells within the believer. So what does it mean to worship in spirit? Well, first of all, it sort of makes sense that if God is spirit and we have received God's spirit through Jesus, then the way that we worship God, the way that we express our love towards him directly, is also done in spirit. But what does that look like? Among other things, our worship must originate from within, from the heart, and be sincere. sincere. It is motivated by our love towards God and our gratitude for what he has done for us. We are worshipping more because of the internal working of the Holy Spirit. This produces sincere worship as opposed to things like external traditions and rituals and maybe expectations of what we should be doing. And those things can lead us into a sort of a more of a formal or mechanical type of worship. The Holy Spirit reveals to us who God is and stirs us to celebrate and to rejoice and to give thanks to God. He guides us and leads us in our worship. Paul talks about this in his letter to the Philippians. This is from Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we who worship by the Spirit of God are the ones who are truly circumcised. We rely on what Christ Jesus has done for us. We put no confidence in human effort. Now, alongside worshipping God in spirit is worshipping him in truth. As with our entire Christian walk, our worship should line up with the revelation of God through his word. Our worship in spirit should not be contrary to what is in scripture. As Jesus said, true worshippers worship the Father in spirit and truth. It's not one or the other. The two work together. So Jesus revealed that going forward, it was not important where we worship, but what counted was how we worship. Now gathering here today is definitely part of our worship. That's very scriptural. However, the emphasis is not on this particular location or this church organisation that we belong to, but rather on us gathering together as brothers and sisters in Christ and worshipping God together in spirit and truth. And of course, this should not be the only way in which we worship. Worshipping in spirit and truth should be part of our individual Christian experience as well, and it should permeate into all areas of our life. The focus of the conversation again shifts back to Jesus and who Jesus is, is, is and what that means. Now it appears that the woman and therefore the Samaritan people had some knowledge of the coming Messiah. As mentioned earlier, the Samaritans accepted the first five books of scripture and from that they had an awareness of the concept of the coming Messiah. I know the Messiah is coming, the one who is called Christ. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And then what was Jesus' awesome reply? It was, 
I am the Messiah. Now I got a little bit confused at that point because I thought, oh, this is one of these great I am statements of the book of John. But um, it's just the version that I use, New Living Translation. In other translations, he says, the one that you're talking about, I am he. But it's still the same thing. He was basically saying, I am the Messiah. So once again, Jesus is making a fantastic and profound claim about himself. And this is one of the very few times that Jesus directly refers to himself as the Messiah. And in this instance, he is very forthright about it. Another scripture that I found where Jesus directly claims to be the Messiah is in Luke 4, when he is at Nazareth. He claimed to be the fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy of the Anointed One. Um, the Anointed One would bring good news to the poor, proclaim that the captives would be released, the blind would see, and the oppressed would be set free. Now in that particular uh, circumstance, he wasn't believed and he was rejected as the Messiah by his own people. The Samaritans, like the Jews, were looking forward to and were waiting for the Messiah. The Messiah is the same word as Christ and both titles translate as the Anointed One. And the Anointed One would come in fulfilment to what God had promised to Abraham through the lineage of Judah. The Messiah would be a unique king sent by God who would bring God's blessing to the nations of the world. He would sacrifice his life to atone for the sins of others. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? This promise tracks throughout the Old Testament. Right back in Genesis, one of, we read about how one of Eve's descendants would overthrow God's enemy, the serpent, um, we see that the promise made to Abraham, one of Abraham's descendants, would be a king through whom all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And then later on, we see that this Messiah would be linked to the dynasty of King David. The promised Messiah was fulfilled in Jesus, hence the title Jesus Christ, Jesus the Anointed One. And here at Jacob's well, Speaking to this lone Samaritan woman, Jesus states that he is the fulfilment to the Messianic promise. The people of Nazareth rejected this claim. The Jewish leadership would never accept him as a Messiah. In fact, Jesus was treated as a blasphemer. They failed to recognize him as a Messiah. And a few years later, he was tried and sentenced to death because of this claim. And of course, Jesus' death, his resurrection and ascension fulfilled God's promise of salvation through the Messiah. The Samaritan woman believed the claims that Jesus made and her life was transformed. In conclusion, we're going to look at what happened next. At the end of the text that we read this morning, we see that the woman left her water jar she went back to town. In fact, I noticed as I was reading it this morning that she didn't just went back to town, she ran back to town. And she shared with the town people what had just happened and the claims that Jesus had just made to her. Come and see this guy. He knows everything about me. He is claiming to be Messiah. Is it possible? Could this be the Messiah that we 
have hoped and waited for. So the people left town and they went out to see Jesus for themselves. And we're just going to pick up uh, further in chapter John, uh, John chapter 4 and verse 39. Many Samaritans from the village believed in Jesus because the woman had said, He told me everything I ever did. When they came out to see him, they begged him to stay in their village. So he stayed for two days, long enough for many more to hear his message and believe. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not just because of what you told us, but because we have heard him ourselves. Now we know that he is indeed the saviour of the world. That's one of them ringing their mate to tell them about it as well. (laughs) Okay, in closing, I have a couple of points for us to ponder and I've put them as a couple of questions for us to consider. First one is, do you believe Jesus' claims? Now, in preparing for this sermon, I found myself somewhat identifying with the Samaritan woman, and it's the first time that I've read this account that I've sort of seen this or, or thought, thought about this. And um, it's going back to a time just before I came to believe Jesus as, a sa- as my saviour and all the time uh, when I became a Christian. Um, I had some sort of understanding of who Jesus was. I'd been to Sunday school. I'd sat through Bibles in school. I'd even read parts of the Bible and was familiar with biblical stories. I had relatives who were Christians. Now, I differed from the Samaritan woman in the sense that I was only 17 at the time, so I hadn't been married five times by that stage. (laughs) In fact, I wasn't even working on it. However, when I came to the realisation that maybe, just maybe, God is for real, then I realised that everything in the Bible was for real. The claims that Jesus made about himself and the claims that others in the Bible made about him are for real. Now, while I didn't have the same sort of rap sheet that the Samaritan woman had, I quickly realised that I was totally inadequate before God. God was well above me and everything around me. He was much higher than the best person that I could possibly know. He was higher than any human morality or ideology or outlook on life. There was no comparison. These things allotted to nothing in the light of him. So I came to the realisation that the sin thing that I had also had an awareness of was was for real as well. I was sinful and my sin stood in the way of me and God. I recognised that and I needed to deal with that. And so I repented and believed and became a follower. If you're not a believer or a follower of Christ today, I encourage you to look into these claims that Jesus made about himself. Look into the claims that the Bible and that we Christians make about him. The citizens of Sychar didn't just believe because of the woman's claims. They went to the source to check it out. If you have or do come to the realisation that this God and Jesus are for real, then 
everything that he claims about himself is also the truth. The next question you should be asking yourself should be, what am I going to do about that? The next two questions are related to one another. Um, we should be sharing Jesus with others. But in the light of today's message, I wanted us to think about who are we sharing the gospel with? One of the standout features of this account is the whole Jewish and Samaritan dynamic. And I think it's fair to say that we sometimes struggle with this sort of thing ourselves. We can fall into the trap of what we think a Christian should look like and also what we think a potential Christian should look like. Sadly, there are some Christians and churches who appear to expect people to be Christ-like before they can share the gospel with them or before they can even let them walk through the front doors. But the reality is that as we look around the church throughout New Zealand and the world, as we hear the testimony and the background of some of those who follow Christ, and as we read of some of the accounts of some of the people that God saved in his word, we learn that God can reach and save anyone. There is no one who is completely out of God's reach. We don't really have any idea of who God will save. So the best answer to who should we share the gospel with is pretty much anyone that we can. Clearly some people will be more approachable than others and therefore easier to witness to. Some people will be challenging to share the good news with. The thing is, we should be open to sharing the gospel and prepared for whoever comes our way. And then that sort of continues on as well. When we are discipling, we may also need to be patient and loving with some people. Some people come to Christ from harsh backgrounds and possibly backgrounds of addiction. We all face challenges, temptations and setbacks when we are working out our salvation through the Holy Spirit and alongside each other. Some people grow in Christ quickly, others take a bit longer. Perfection is not a prerequisite for being a child of God. And then the last question is, are we actually sharing the gospel? Are we sharing what we know about Jesus with others? We saw that the first thing that the Samaritan woman went and did after her encounter with Jesus was to go and share what she knew about him with others. Many citizens of Sychar became believers because of this. And I'm sure that when the church was established uh, a few years later that the believers of Sychar became part of the larger church family. And of course, as we know um, through what we read in the Word, that the church spread from Jerusalem into the surrounding area and into the world at large. Are we sharing the gospel? Well, we should be, shouldn't we? It's fitting to finish with what's known as the Great Commandment. This is one of Jesus' last instructions for the disciples. In fact, the way I read it, it's pretty much his last instruction for the disciples. And this instruction applies to the church at large and to us believers individually. This is from Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria 
and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we just, we just thank you for everything that you have done for us. Lord, we just look at these uh, claims that you've made about yourself and Lord, we declare them as the truth, uh, not just in the word but in our lives as well. Lord, we pray that um, you reassure us in our faith and strengthen us, but Lord, we also pray that you give us the courage and, and Lord, the, the motivation to share you with those around us. Lord, we pray that you bring people along our way uh, and, Lord, help us to be open in the spirit to share with them who you are and what you're about. In Jesus' name, amen.